Welcome back to American Capital, our podcast tracing the development of capitalism in the United States. From the first corporate ships to complex economies defined by trade, factories, and finance, up to the business models that exist today. What is capitalism? Where has it been? Who made it that way? And where are we going? Where are we going? In this episode of American Capital, we discuss the events that occurred directly after the American Revolution, along with the particular financial factors which led to the adoption of the United States Constitution. We also detail the internal debate on what this new republic should look like. We'll begin with material about the first Industrial Revolution, the one back in Britain, told to the lens of Adam Smith and the new forms that factories there were taking. Which changes across the Atlantic had significant impact on the speculative visions that Americans were forming about the future of their own economy? What should America build toward? And, though they weren't calling it capitalism yet, how an American economy that we come to call capitalist begins. Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson are two individuals with very different visions for what the American economy should look like. One favors finance and manufacturers, the other farming. We discuss the pros and cons of these two approaches, and whether either of them appears more modern or capitalist. Hopefully, we add a layer of complexity to this cliched story, and we'll describe which vision ends up winning to take the country forward. We then end with a discussion of the Louisiana Purchase, because there were two radically different ways to interpret this purchase. One is of Thomas Jefferson, an extension of his farmland vision. The other is the acquisition of a huge amount of land that enables slavery's expansion. In many ways it was both, but these two frameworks have different implications, and one of them helps to explain why we've dedicated so much time so far in American capital to discussing slavery in the New World. So, where were we last episode? It was a combination of the Middle Passage, the slave trade across the Atlantic, and the American Revolution. There are two key takeaways from our previous discussion of the Middle Passage. First is just that it was massive. Twelve and a half million people were forced to come to the New World from the coast of Africa, and this number doesn't account for the additional people who died along the way. The Middle Passage is not just big, but it's so large partly because human losses were built into the business model. Those involved in the slave trade knew that people would die along the way, and they knew that there would be revolts, however rare. The scale of the slave trade itself is part of the ways people plan to make money, and they made a lot of money, which is part of the reason why they are so willing to undertake all these risks. We then discussed the logbook of the slave ship Sally. There were three key points to take away from this source. One, rebellion was hard. So when historians ask, why didn't slaves revolt? Remember that it was extremely hard to do so. Secondly, records of revolts are simply hard to find in our existing archive. They're often mentioned in passing, surrounded by other material, so it's probable that much more resistance occurred than what we know about. And third, what a big business document this logbook was. Even on a slave ship, which we may have believed to be a kind of primordial and totally non-business-like environment, people kept careful track and made careful notations in an attempt to increase their profits. We went from the Middle Passage to the American Revolution, where we shifted from the lens of a historian to that of an economist to construct a quantitative answer to the question, was the revolution truly motivated by no taxation without representation? Here, we saw economist Robert Thomas's work, where he figured that the answer is in some ways yes, that for individual people the burden was large, but if one actually tallies up the cost of the British Navigation Acts, etc., the burden was truly very small for the average colonist in dollar terms, something in the range of 1% of per capita income. However, it's not only about material impact. It was about economics in a cultural sense, 
because ideas about the financial burden of taxation were motivating forces for the revolution. The final topic we touched on last episode, just briefly, is whether or not the American Revolution belongs in an age of revolutions. Many revolutions occurred in a period of something like 75 years, and for a while, historians have answered yes to this question. The contention is that the Haitian Revolution and the American Revolution don't have much in common at their core. People were inspired in both places, but the people who were inspired by the American Revolution in Haiti were the planters, not the rebelling slaves. These two revolutions are also parallel in that they both have among the first declarations of independence. But, as we talked about, these are radically different. And they feel radically different because the conflicts and the social circumstances of these two places were extremely different. The parallels here have limits. We left with a uniting question. If capitalism is about the expansion of both markets in terms of the number of buyers and sellers, but also middlemen in the distance between maker and consumer, how does responsibility play into the new, long chains of interaction and also many purchases for many people that were emerging at this point in history? How does that impact responsibility? When most transactions are local, when you know where something is made or where it was consumed, a lot about the circumstances of its consumption can be known. So, in a moment where we have probably one of the greatest tragedies of the modern world, the transatlantic slave trade, and all that it entailed, who ends up being responsible? Where do we draw the line? Is it the financiers who are financing the trade? Is it the insurers who are insuring the finances? Is it the people who are consuming the cotton? Or is it even anybody who's wearing slave-grown cloth? This is a question that continues to resonate. But where do we go from here, after the American Revolution? At this point in American capital, some listening may be thinking that we've been moving too fast. We've already covered two centuries, while others may feel that the content so far has simply been a rehash of their high school history class. In this episode, episode 5, is the moment in which American capital begins to slow its pace, where we go deeper into economic and financial topics. So, what was the financial outlook after the American Revolution? The total cost of the war was very high, something like $100 million to $140 million, adding up to about $40 to $50 per American. If you remember the real dollar calculations from last episode, we talked about $1 to $2 per American per year as being the cost of being a part of the British Empire. So, the cost of the Revolutionary War, and the burden to pay this off, is massive when compared to the cost of simply remaining British colonists. If we thought about this in rational terms, the ex-colonists now find themselves in a much more difficult economic position than before they went into the war. And as living standards drop, as we'll touch on in a moment, the government faces an immediate fiscal crisis. The currency is very weak, there's a huge debt from the war, there's slow growth, which is related to both of these, and there's also limited international trade. The American Congress has run up substantial debts, borrowing a lot of money internationally. $6 million from France, $2 million from Holland and from Spain, and domestically, they borrowed $11 million. The people are not sure whether these debts are going to be repaid. They're also unsure of the value and consistency of the various currencies that are in circulation at this time. Complicating this fact, the Articles of Confederation, which are knitting the new nation together, give very little power to tax or to take care of any of these problems. Robert Morris becomes the first superintendent of finance in the newly established U.S., Morris was born in England and came to the Chesapeake Bay area when he was 10 years old, and he eventually arrives in Philadelphia, where he lives and becomes a general merchant, like Thomas Hancock. Morris is an importer. He deals in all kinds of different goods, and he was hit hard by the Stamp Act on the eve of the Revolution. He's elected to the Continental Congress, and he becomes an important participant in debates about the financial future of the country. Not only is Robert Morris a big participant in debates, but he also has skin in the game himself. 
he loans $10,000 of his own money to the federal government. This money was crucial to the success of the revolution. He's provisioning troops in desperate times of need, at times when the war is looking uncertain, and he's also underwriting the privateers that circumvent the British blockades in their attempts to deliver supplies to the new troops. Morris becomes the superintendent of finance, and he seems like he's pretty well suited to this job. He knows the economy, he's relatively skilled, and he tries to pull things together. However, the Articles of Confederation allowed any single state to block proposed taxes. Each year, as he proposes a taxation scheme, at least one state will block it. The government finds itself totally unable to raise revenue. And while it's not important to the national story, finance ends up badly for Morris as well. He's a speculator personally, and he ends up in a debtor's prison for his own debts. But that's just an aside. So what's happening? If this is what the government is facing, what's happening on the ground? The financial distress is felt all the way down to the bottom here. Continental currency is the fiat currency issued by the government during the war. And if we look at how many are exchanged for pounds, for sterling silver, hard money, over just the three-year period from 1777 to 1780, we go from basically a one-to-one -one relationship where people have high faith in the continental dollar, all the way up to, by the end of 1780, almost 4,000 to one. The continental currency essentially becomes junk money. People believe that it's worth nothing, and people only buy it as a speculative investment. These are moments where people have lost faith in the currency, and that causes it to rise exponentially to outrageous heights. This hits people hard, particularly the troops, who have been paid in this money, as well as the suppliers of the federal government, who have been forced to accept payment in this colonial money. Anything that they had saved or received as payment for the war is essentially worthless by 1780. Over time, this economic distress manifests as social unrest. If we were to summarize the impact of this deflation and other measures on average people, the income levels of 1770, before the revolution, are only reattained in 1800. Here, we have a 30-year period where not only is there no income growth, but the levels of income also fall dramatically, and then they slowly return to the levels of 1780. And this hits small, small farmers the hardest. Per capita income among this group actually doesn't regain its earlier height by 1800. In 1805, it's still down something like 10% from the period before the Revolutionary War. Shea's Rebellion is a rebellion led by some of those people who have been hit the hardest by the deflation of the continental currency. Daniel Shea, who led the rebellion, was a Revolutionary War veteran. He leads a group of rebels on a march to the United States Federal Armory in Springfield. They attempt to seize its weaponry with the idea that they were going to overthrow the government and create a more equitable situation. Shea's Rebellion is defeated militarily, but it does force the federal government to reconsider the extent of its own powers at the U.S. Constitutional Convention, and it drew the then-retired George Washington out of his retirement, pushing him back into politics. The bottom line of all of this is that at the end of the war, and for a long time afterwards, one could not predict economic takeoff. How much change happens over time? What eventually catapults the U.S. to the top of the world economy is actually slow growth, roughly 3% a year over a 200-year period, and this growth hadn't yet started in the late 18th century. It took into the 19th century before we begin to see the United States take a truly promising economic trajectory. But the new constitution goes a long way to solve the problems that governors like Robert Morris had faced. The constitution grants the federal government more extensive powers. It expands the scope of their ability to intervene in the economy. Among these powers are the powers to levy and collect taxes, to regulate the currency, and to borrow money. In addition, the related ability to regulate interstate trade and to regulate foreign affairs. When we talk about Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton later on, one of them is the Secretary of State and the other the Secretary of Finance. 
and on the subject of interstate trade and foreign affairs, they find themselves both on the same turf, which is one reason for their conflict. Before continuing on to the rest of the podcast and the visions for what the nation should become, it's worth pausing to share a historical footnote. One of the most famous books written on American history is from 1913, titled The Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. It's written by the historian Charles Beard. In it, he essentially argues that these provisions in the new constitution, and the constitution itself, were not adopted to save the overall economy. Rather, it was adopted to line the pockets of the Founding Fathers. Beard says that these particular benefits were essentially set up to ensure that a handful of people, who are directly involved with the authorship of the Constitution, were going to become wealthy. While the results of the Constitution were the stabilization of the economy and the protection of property, and while many historians have spent time to disprove Charles Beard, it's useful to know that his argument published in 1913, just over a century ago, and a long time from the passage of the Constitution, people have been debating the Constitution with much more vigor than we do today. We haven't always had the kind of veneration for the Constitution that we see today, that it's just some untouchable economic document. Just a hundred years ago, a huge historical position was that this was essentially a self-interested document simply meant to help wealthier Americans. Regardless, for this podcast, our position, just for simplicity mainly, is that the Constitution gave the government essential powers to survive and to stabilize the economy. So where do we go from here? While our focus is the Industrial Revolution in the US, one has to know a bit about what's going on in Britain in order to tie the US into the larger story. There is no British Industrial Revolution without American cotton, and there's no American cotton without American slavery. We'll begin with Adam Smith. It was 1776. You had American Revolution, Adam Smith. It's a close connection. Both Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had read Adam Smith and he remains one of the only 18th century writers that politicians still talk about all the time today. Historians are actually in the middle of a reevaluation of Adam Smith, and people have now begun to believe that his ideas are not as new as they once thought, and that it's possible that many of the things Smith said and wrote he actually read in the works of a group of French economists scholars call the physiocrats. Regardless, the ideas Adam Smith puts forward remain distinct from the mercantilist policies that came before him by a long period. What does Smith have to say about mercantilism in the context of the Navigation Acts? Reflecting on Britain's attempt to keep the Americans from their own manufacturing rights, Smith writes, The more advanced or more refined manufacturers, the merchants and manufacturers of Great Britain choose to reserve to themselves and have prevailed upon the legislator to prevent their reestablishment in the colonies, sometimes by high duties, sometimes by absolute prohibitions. To prohibit a great people from making all that they can of their own produce or employing their stock in the way that they judge most advantageous to themselves, is a violation of the most sacred rights of mankind. Smith's opinion is that the government of Britain is meddling unfairly in the efforts of the colonists. And who knows if he would have supported the American Revolution directly. But his philosophical position was that the Navigation Acts, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, etc. had gone too far. It's not only that he believed the Navigation Acts and mercantilism in that regard were going the wrong direction. One can see in Smith's work fundamental shifts had taken place between the philosophy we described previously as mercantilism, and what's coming to be known as capitalism. The first, and likely the most important of these, is that Smith is no longer writing about exchange as zero-sum. It's no longer about the idea that, if we trade, one of us wins and one of us loses. He brings a concept where one of us might win more than the others, but that we both could win. He writes on trade between England and France. Though it were certain that in the case of a free trade between France and England, for example, the balance would be in favor of France it would by no means follow that such a trade would be disadvantageous to England. This seems obvious to us today, 
but this shift to a non-zero-sum outlook is new at this time. Secondly, Smith associates individual liberty with economic change. He believes that free labor is preferable to slavery. He believes this because if people are being paid a wage, or being paid for their work, they're going to be more motivated, they'll work harder and be more efficient. He also mentions the invisible hand, although only once, and he certainly doesn't discuss it in the way that we now attribute it to him. Adam Smith mentions it in the context of not wanting to restrict individuals' freedom to operate economically as they desire. He offers the invisible hand as a way to regulate prices in society, rather than relying on individuals. The alternative to just price here is a price regulated by the invisible hand. At the bottom of all of this, Adam Smith is not anti-government in any modern sense. So even if he references the invisible hand, even if he wants freer trade between England and France, he clearly believes that the form of government is essential to the success of society. He goes on to say that the genius of the British constitution that governs North America, when compared to a mercantile company that's oppressing the East Indies, can explain why one country is doing well. Smith believes that North America is prospering because they're governed by the British constitution, while the East Indies are suppressed because they're being run only by a mercantile company. So showing up here are a couple of the ingredients for our vague, amorphous definition of capitalism. Zero sum, free labor, maybe, and the invisible hand, and then also not anti-government, but likely an interest in limited government. The other thing that shows up that we tend to associate with capitalism is that Adam Smith describes new ways of organizing labor. He's famous for his example of the pin factory. He details the efficiency of taking all of the operations to make one pin and dividing them up against a bunch of workmen. All of a sudden, instead of being able to produce only a handful of pins, we can make tons and tons of pins. We're much more efficient. He writes, One man draws out the wire, another straightens it, a third cuts it, a fourth points it, a fifth grinds at the top for receiving the head. To make the head requires two or three distinct operations to put it on as a peculiar business. To whiten the pins is another. It is even a trade by itself to put them into the paper. Together, they make upwards of 48,000 pins in a day. But if they had all wrought separately, they could not have made 20, perhaps not one pin in a day. A couple of things are going on here. One is that you're replacing an artisan who would have made pins individually with a whole bunch of different workers. And the other is the talk of efficiency. He claims that they go from a limit of one pin a day, so maybe these 15 workers are each making one pin a day, and then he says, okay, they're going to make 48,000. This is part of that zero-sum change. All of a sudden, he thinks that the pie can begin to grow. So, new ways of organizing labor here. But as you can imagine, this also comes with critique. Most early factories were not quaint, airy studios. They were large, they were unsanitary, and they reduced the nature of the labor. If one goes from making a pin to making only the point on a pin, their scope of work has been radically reduced, and the skill of an individual worker has been radically reduced as well. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, for example, are reading Smith's work not long after it's published, and they're literally debating what the shape of the new government should be. Maybe it's ten years later, but they're trying to put this stuff into practice right away. Some of this as well is that Smith is not just coming up with new ideas, he's making observations. It's hard to say which direction the causality goes here, but there was also a lot more factory production occurring in Europe by the time he's writing this. On the other hand, touching especially on the phrase invisible hand, nobody is picking up on this. This phrase doesn't become popular until more than a century later, so certain aspects of Adam Smith's thoughts and theories have delayed impact. Occurring at the same time is this huge number of factories rising at the same time that Adam Smith is writing. To give just a sense of the scope of these new technologies, 
the 18th century is a critical period for the development of the steam engine. The Newcomen steam engine, one of the earliest working engines, is developed in 1712, but it's not that efficient, and it's expensive. Bolton and Watt, a team of entrepreneur investor and an engineer, are the first to truly commercialize steam power, making it widely available in 1775. So right at the moment that Smith is writing, and right at the same moment as the American Revolution. Nowhere is the importance of steam power and its integrations more important than in the rise of textiles. Two of the most important innovations are the spinning jenny and the water frame, and there's a whole host of other innovations in the textile industry that result in significantly faster production of many different grades of cotton cloth and dramatic price falls for cotton cloth. So, expanded consumption, as well as a huge and growing demand for cotton from the American South. And that's one of the things that gives the United States a range of options. As Hamilton and Jefferson look at the American economy thinking, how should we develop this? One option that presents itself is to go this route, to try to adopt these innovations yourself, to bring factories, to develop manufacturers. Yet another is to say, look, these guys already have manufacturers. We can get the benefits of those manufacturers. Plus, they need raw materials. They need raw cotton. Countries with strong manufacturing were also importing wheat, tobacco, and all kinds of things. So Americans can live on nice farms, enjoy the countryside, and still get the benefits. This is what brings us to two competing alternatives for the new economy. First, a bit of background on Hamilton and Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton is a central character in economic policymaking in the new nation. He's one of the characteristic six founding fathers, but he's also very different from all of the others. Hamilton was not born in North America. He was born in the West Indies, and he didn't come to the U.S. until age 15. He's already been an apprentice as a clerk in the West Indies, and he finally arrives at age 15 in 1772, shortly before the Revolutionary War. A few years later, at the age of 18, Alexander Hamilton becomes involved with the revolutionary cause, so just on the eve of the Declaration of Independence. We can see how quickly the tides are shifting at this point in history. Hamilton is remembered for his outstanding intellect, probably one of the smartest of the Founding Fathers, and he outlines solutions to all kinds of problems. He's eventually appointed to be Secretary of the Treasury, a very important role. At peak, Hamilton has 570 people under his supervision, doing various things related to the management of the Treasury. This is a huge amount compared to the other branches of government, where there are often only a handful of employees. At this time, the government was a small operation, and this anomaly speaks to his importance. Hamilton writes a number of reports as well. We'll discuss two of these, his Report on the Public Credit and Report on Manufacturers but it's worth noting that he authors an important report on banking as well, in addition to a whole bunch of other really interesting reflections. And these all detail the direction he believes that the government should take. But these are his three most important official reports. The first of these, the Report on the Public Credit, is written in 1790. It describes the state of the nation's debt, and basically says we have to pay back this debt now because we want to be creditworthy in the long run. The report says a few notable things, including that the federal government should assume the debt of the states. Now, because the federal government assumes the debt of the states, this ensures that the debt will be paid back, and it also binds the states to the federal government. So there's a huge debt, and Hamilton says we gotta pay it back. He said they're going to pay back the debt of the states to ensure the state's loyalty to the federal government, but it's also important that we're going to pay back international debt. Remember the large debts from France and Spain and Holland? Hamilton wants to link the financial fate of these nations to the success of the United States for the long run. It's not that the United States government should be in debt forever. The idea here is that it's good to have a rolling debt, which one pays off over time. We've always had some debt, and we pay off debts as well. 
but the idea is that the people you've loaned to are then invested in your future out of necessity. If we've borrowed money from France and we're going to pay it back over the next 30 years, they want us to stick around. So for a new nation, one in a relatively precarious international position, this secures the interests of other countries who they're going to be paying back. It's not a position about being a net in debt. It's taking a position on who that debt connects you to. Hamilton wants everybody to be on board. In fact, he decides that the United States will have a permanent debt, and that's in order to make those relationships long-term. This move is extremely controversial. Why? The international dimension is certainly part of it, but the controversy over deciding to pay back all these war bonds is controversial because these bonds are no longer owned by the original owners. Remember the deprecation of the colonial currency? Something similar had happened with war bonds. During the period under the Articles of Confederation, the government is looking poorly. At this time, it was not clear to the people who held these war bonds that they'd ever be paid back, and as a result, the majority of those holding them had sold them to more wealthy bond speculators. When the government decides to buy back these war bonds to clear the debt, those people who are going to get rich aren't necessarily these ordinary suppliers or people who had helped the revolutionary cause. And as a result, this policy is controversial. This is a period of wild speculation for some, and among the most interesting findings about women's financial activities in this period has been that Abigail Adams was a truly important bond speculator. During this time period, women, especially married women like Adams, did not have a lot of economic rights. They were often subject to a doctrine called coverture, where their husbands had legal control over their economic rights. For a long time, historians believed that coverture was pretty complete at taking away women's rights, but it turns out that there were lots of women who used interesting ways to keep control over their money. Some historians have extended this to their investigations of southern slave-owning women as well, where, under coverture, a woman who owned slaves should not have been able to have control over her slaves. Arguments are emerging that not only did women own their slaves, but that they retained this control over them after marriage, which, despite the doctrine of coverture, is a similarly problematic story. These women are cruel and difficult, but on the other hand, they're exercising economic independence in a moment when it was very hard to do so. While John Adams is away at war, Abigail manages the family's financial affairs, and she actually thought that John Adams was a poor financial investor. He placed the family's investments in land, which made a huge loss, and Abigail says that, the money that we paid for useless land I would have used to buy public securities. Indeed, she buys up revolutionary war bonds, and while she's probably not the original purchaser, many of the bonds she ends up owning have been bought from war veterans at a fraction of their face value, as low as 25 cents on the dollar. She then makes a killing on these bonds, securing the Adams' financial success. She's also a fascinating figure, because as we mentioned, women weren't supposed to have control over their income at this time, especially married women. Abigail Adams is interesting because she actually chose to leave a will. Married women were not supposed to be legally allowed to leave a will. She's made further interesting by her decision to not only leave a will, but that she only made token bequests to her two surviving sons, and she left the rest of her estate, which is worth about $100,000 today, to women, several of whom were themselves married and therefore technically not permitted to own property either. She seems to have made a statement here to try to keep money in the control of women. But her story is a two-sided one. She's getting rich, so we can root for her as an early pioneering bond speculator, but it's important to remember that her wealth is built on the backs of revolutionary war veterans and war suppliers who lost big in this interchange. Abigail is also connected to John Adams, who has an important vote at the table to decide whether or not these bills will get paid. We'll now touch briefly on Hamilton's other report, the Report on Manufacturers. Here, Hamilton is trying to encourage manufacturing, and the way he wants to do this is through a protective tariff. 
His suggestion is to tax imports of manufactured goods from abroad, and that's going to give an impetus to production in the United States because American goods are going to be cheaper by comparison, or at least competitively priced. The tariffs are also controversial because they would largely benefit the manufacturers, most of which are in the North. If we look to Southern planters, they need to buy all of their manufactured goods, so this would effectively obligate them to pay more at the time. Regardless, Hamilton believes that this is a necessity in order to develop a manufacturing base for multiple reasons, ranging from national security to securing independence as a nation. So Hamilton, he's finance and manufacturing. The other perspective comes from Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence. In contrast to Hamilton, Jefferson is quite a bit older. He's born in Virginia on a tobacco plantation, born wealthy, and he inherits almost 3,000 acres of land and many slaves. He grew tobacco. Jefferson's vision is not anti-commercial, but it places its focus on agriculture. He clashes with Hamilton intensely over that protective tariff. As Secretary of State, Jefferson is responsible for foreign affairs, and this is what brings him into conflict with Hamilton most directly, because he wants to advocate free trade abroad. This means no tariff, which means undermining Hamilton's position. It's not just that Jefferson's against the tariff. He also has a vision for the country, and he believes that the mass of American people should be farmers. He wants to avoid having a permanent class of laborers, and he wants to avoid manufacturing. He believes it's bad for people to be manufacturers, but that it's beneficial for them to be attached to the land. At the same time, it seemed like you could have the best of both worlds, that people could be farmers and yet buy all their manufactured goods. But this was, in part, an artifact of the fact that staple prices were high, which is something we discuss shortly. We have our choice between Jefferson and Hamilton, if we oversimplify. For Jefferson, we think that the country should have no tariff and that we should all be farmers. For Hamilton, it's crucial to develop a manufacturing base. And related to this, we need to have a tariff and we need to invest in financial infrastructure. So, are you for Hamilton or for Jefferson? Jefferson's approach requires the U.S. to stay on good terms with the rest of the world. Free trade is good, and this can be related to the payment of long-term debt. And we know how to do raw materials. Low prices for the average person, who's struggling at this time, will exist due to the absence of significant tariffs, which would only raise prices. Jefferson encourages localized, small-scale manufacturing. He wants people to be entrepreneurial. He wants them to be these yeoman farmers. And he argues that we should begin with farming, with what we already know. Now, Hamilton. Remember that at this moment in time, we're still in the period of mercantilism, where people are not thinking about free trade. So if we were just going to become free traders, we'd have to lead the successful implementation of that practice. And this would put us at a disadvantage, because everybody around us is actively enacting tariffs. Hamilton recognizes that the U.S. is at the mercy of Europe. The price of a raw good can change at any time. While we might do fine when prices are in our favor, we'll find ourselves in trouble when faced with a situation of rising prices for manufactured goods and dropping material prices. Next, Hamilton knows that the establishment of manufacturing in the U.S. will have an expensive, rough start. He believes that these capabilities will never get started in any significant amount without a tariff or a special incentive. Jefferson's vision may also be short-sighted. His vision only works in situations where we have extra land, and eventually the country will run out of that extra space. At that point, we need home-based manufacturing, which could have the added benefit of possibly reducing economic dependence on producing slavery-intensive raw goods. So we've arrived at the subject of labor. What would labor look like in these two versions of society? We've got a ton of land, at least compared to Europe. So if we begin to run out of land in 50 years, that's when we should pivot. 
but for now we have plenty of land, and we're not good at manufacturing, so we should play to our strengths. What does that tell us about labor? The idea here is that Jefferson is going to create a nation of independent farmers, who are going to be independent citizens, who are going to have their own vote. They're not going to be tied to factories. Jefferson's vision may make things less unequal. And to this inequality question, which of these two propositions result in a more equal society? You may be saying, look, Jefferson in his nice little notes on Virginia says, we're going to have all these wonderful independent farmers pushing their own plow. But if you look at Jefferson himself, he has a huge tobacco plantation, and this agriculture approach could mean small blocks of land, or it could mean huge plots of land split very unequally. Wage labor might actually be a way up because, look, lots of people are not going to own land. This comes back to that question. We have an abundance of land. On the other, agriculture is based on the ownership of that land, so the structure of who owns land may be the determining factor in which one of these societies is more equal. It isn't inevitable, but one way or the other as things unfolded, both of these visions had some inequality in them. Jefferson is emphasizing the free market, but also advocating that capital be invested in land. And then we have Hamilton, where the investment, the capital itself, becomes more important, especially invested in factories. Hamilton wants to use manufacturing to tie the country together, to make people more interdependent. If Jefferson cares about one thing, it's lack of dependence. He doesn't want one person to be financially dependent on another. Independence may be good in some cases, but in this case, what we need is more tying together. Historians have typically seen Hamilton as the forward-thinking economic progressive, the one you would call capitalist if you called either capitalist, while Jefferson was the throwback. He wanted a more slow, old-fashioned farmer society where people were independent and could be a unique, disparate voice. Both of these visions contain the seeds of a capitalist economy. The difference between the two is the distribution of capital. Jefferson wants people to become farmers. Here, what determines whether that society of farmers is equal or unequal is where the capital, in this case invested in land, is. Is it in small plots of land owned by lots and lots of people, therefore creating a relatively equal distribution of wealth? Or is it in large agro-businesses? Or even worse, in plantations that are going to be highly unequal? The same thing is potentially true with Hamilton. It can grow the pie, and it's going to have more invested capital. But the question, again, is how is that pie going to be distributed? And how is the society going to be structured? These are the key debates that will unfold as we go forward. The question of who wins is not as relevant as the decisions made as these two visions played out. It's not whether or not they're capitalist, but what kind of capitalist society are they creating? As Jefferson describes it, he's interested in putting land in the hands of lots of small individuals. With the Hamiltonian vision, there's not an aspect like this, but there are all kinds of reasons why manufacturing is not necessarily worse for the average person. For many, making a wage can be liberating rather than trapping. We'll discuss this in the next episode when we get to the Lowell Mill Girls, early wage workers. So who won, looking forward? It changes over time. In the short term, Jefferson wins the political debates. He carries the day in that most short-term policies align with his vision. But in the longer term, the United States does not remain a primarily agricultural nation. We have a huge transformation, and manufacturing becomes far more important eventually. We also end up having quite high tariffs to encourage domestic manufacturers. But where was the American economy in 1790 as we launch into this economy? The total population is almost 4 million. Farmers are 90% of the labor force at this time. Only 200,000 people lived in towns with more than 25,000 people in 1790. Eventually, this number does skyrocket, but for 1790, 1800, 1812, 1820, the relative rate of urbanization remains modest. 
Over the short term and moderate term, the country's not getting much more urbanized. Those numbers do increase, but not much faster than the growth of the whole population. So the country is dramatically rural, and if 90% of people are farmers, what do the rest of people do? One might guess manufacturing, but it turns out that almost none of the rest of the 10% are in manufacturing. 40% of them had something to do with manning ocean vessels, another 40% are domestic servants, 10% are in mining, which one could say is semi-industrial. 5% are in fishing, another 5% are teachers, yet only 1% in textile manufacturing and 1% in iron manufacturing. And there's rounding error in this data here, but the point is that hardly any Americans at this time are working in textile manufacturing or iron manufacturing, and those are the only two big areas of manufacturing experiencing growth. We've been having this play to your strengths type of argument, and really we've had very little going on in terms of manufacturing. So if we think that we should play to our strengths, we should go with farming. On the other hand, we could say, wow, we can't make anything. Like from a national security perspective, we really need to develop our manufacturing sector. The overall portrait of how this changed, and this is what we need to keep in mind throughout, is that agriculture dominates the short run history of the American economy. However, from 1790, this began to shift steadily. 90% are in agriculture in 1790, and that number has dropped to 1.6% today and it's been below 5% since the 1960s. Still, in 1900, some 30% of people work in agriculture. The US was a starkly agricultural nation for many years and only recently has transitioned. So if Jefferson's agricultural vision won in the short term, it's a vision reliant on two characteristics, both of which are quite fragile. The first is that if you believe that you want to have farmers who will independently grow raw materials and buy their manufactured goods from abroad, you have to have favorable prices for raw materials in order to buy stuff. The Jeffersonian vision depends on high prices. The other dependency is land. America may have a lot of land, but it doesn't have land forever. So the first of those two things, the high prices. If prices change, then you're at the whims of the international community if all you do is farm. And for a long time in the early republic, we had high and rising prices. Looking at wheat prices from 1784 to 1817, most of the early Republic period, Britain was importing a lot of wheat. Wheat was the Jeffersonian dream crop, because if you grow wheat, you can eat wheat, right? You're self-sufficient. If the price of wheat falls, at least you can eat, and that's not so with tobacco. With wheat, if product prices fall a bit, then you can feed yourself. What's more, the prices are up and down here and there, but they're basically on an increase, so people can not only feed themselves, they're secure and protected from the market from that perspective, but they also have plenty of wheat to export, and the prices stay high, which enables them to buy manufactured goods. This agricultural vision wins and stays strong, in part because of these high prices. The other requirement, land. We have land, but not unlimited land. People are quickly moving west. By 1810, over a million people were west of the Appalachian Mountains. Remember that this is a huge fraction of the population, roughly 20% at that time, given that there were 4 million people in total in 1790. This operates in two different ways. People are moving into the Ohio River Valley, and these are mostly relatively small homesteads. But down south, what's happening are huge plantations. The way this unfolds isn't random. It's related to what crop is being grown and where demands are for that crop. It's also related to topics such as who surveys the land, how they sold it, and who can buy it. What is the format for buying? Much of the southern land is divided up into large parcels and sold at auctions, privileging large buyers. Of course, even this land will eventually run out. So what do we do? The Louisiana Purchase. 
One of Jefferson's main goals while he's in office is to expand the scope of the country through the Louisiana Purchase. There are international political economy reasons for doing this, such as our relationship with Britain and France, but it also falls into his vision of an agricultural nation. It's more land for more people to farm. We have this expansion in the upper Midwest area, where people are going west to become homesteaders in the 1860s and 70s, but we can also observe an expansion along the other side of the Mississippi River, which is going to be filled up with cotton plantations. Planters keep moving up until the Red River in Texas, expanding the empire of slavery as they go. There are two ways to think about this expansion of land. One can think of Jefferson as clearing the way for planters like himself, and remember, Jefferson owns 3,000 acres of land and many slaves. If he believes himself to be the model of independence, someone owing nothing to anything but the land, then his model is an unequal one. On the other hand, the way Jefferson writes about this in his notes on the state of Virginia, he's really focused on ordinary farmers. He says, if we have a nation of small farmers, each will have his own privilege. This is like the image that we all work hard, we're independent, we can feed ourselves because we're growing wheat, and we can export it to Europe in order to buy that fancy hat that we can't manufacture at home. It is true that people overestimate the good life on the farm. We see this especially when people write about factory discipline and the assembly line. There's also a natural assembly line of weather and days which pushes labor just as hard as a boss. It's important not to romanticize it. And it could be that you have a bad frost, but the market prices can also be erratic for reasons outside of your control. As a result, you may not be able to pay off your debt. From Jefferson's perspective, if these farmers own their land and they have a bad harvest, he assumes they'll at least be able to get by because they'll likely already grow their own food crops. However, by the late 19th century, those people who maybe had a bad harvest, they end up not owning their land. They probably have a mortgage instead. And when you don't own your land, have a bad harvest, and have a mortgage, you may eat that one winter. But without a way to pay your mortgage, you're heading toward eviction and a total loss of ability to pay. So this vision of independence is ultimately going to be tied up in dependencies, and financial dependencies, that have yet to emerge on the capitalist timeline. We end with this question about the Louisiana Purchase. Should we interpret this as paving the way for a republic of farmers, or is it the creation of an empire for slavery? Large plantations have been surveyed out on every side of the Mississippi. This is the way the Louisiana Purchase went divided up, highly unequally, resulting in space for slavery's expansion? Or should we see this instead as room for a republic of farmers? There are clues to both. On one hand, Jefferson shows signs of being anti-slavery in some ways. He was involved in debates over ending the slave trade. He may not talk about ending slavery himself, and he doesn't appear to believe it is bad in and of itself, but Jefferson does believe that the slave trade itself is bad, and indeed, the end of the slave trade is coming. In 1807, it's ended in Britain, and in 1808, on the first date permitted by the Constitution, it ends in the U.S. On the tail of the Haitian Revolution, the future for slavery looks poor. We could see this as a moment of slavery in the decline, and we could see a possibility for a nation founded on land divisions of small, equal parts. We could perceive the creation of a society where free markets accompany equality. In contrast, there is soaring demand for cotton. Remember that visit to the British Industrial Revolution. All of those innovations in Britain require huge amounts of cotton. There's also the crucial innovation of the cotton gin, which we won't talk about extensively, but it essentially allowed people to process cotton efficiently and in high volumes, making it so that there were huge economies of scale to be gained in the growing of cotton on large plantations, rather than in small, individual units. At this particular moment, one could say with equal certainty that slavery looks like it's in big trouble, or that it looks like it's expanding. This dichotomy will continue over the early 19th century, and really up through the American Civil War, 
even a little bit beyond. In fact, in 1855, some Americans argue that we should reopen the slave trade. Our Louisiana Purchase could be the beginning of that, the launching point for that debate. Or, it can represent the aspiration that we may have for an equal society. We could see it as a predecessor to the Homestead Act as an opportunity to push us towards equality. We'll continue these debates as American capital progresses. In the next episode, we examine how the Industrial Revolution plays out in America, highlighting letters from the Lowell Mill Girls. We discuss pieces of writing by Ed Baptist and by Mark Smith, one writing about finance and slavery, the other about time discipline and slavery. A case study of the stopwatches. <laughs>